I don't doubt that your uh, Thanksgiving celebration, whatever it was this past week, was probably different than in years past. Um, My guess is that uh, you were prompted still, I hope you were, to ask the question, what are you thankful for? Or maybe that presupposes a question behind that, are you thankful at all? Uh, And therein, if so, for what, right? Uh, It's a good question to ask, uh, whether it's 2019, 2020, 2021, whether it's November or October or December, um, whether it's sitting around in a festival feast or just on your own by yourself, reflecting on that question can be a really fruitful one to wrestle with. Am I thankful, and what am I thankful for? Uh, you know, of, of course, thinking back on this year, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to list all the reasons. I think like that would be a little counterproductive, but list all the reasons why you might not be thankful. Uh, 2020, uh, we don't need to, to do that. I think certainly no few of us come up with a laundry list of, of as to why we wish that this thing was just in, in the rearview mirror. I hate to tell you, by the way, but just because the calendar changes doesn't make it all just magically go away. Uh, just just want to preempt that delusion, if I may. Um, but if the, if the facts be told and, and truth be known, yes, of course, there are understandable barriers to thankfulness in this contemporary moment. There are obstacles to gratitude that one would be foolish not to recognize and just own and face and reckon with. But at the same time, if we're honest, we would have to acknowledge that it didn't take 2020 to make us struggle with gratitude. We were struggling with that in 2019. That that heart issue of, of, of gratitude and thankfulness, it's a profound struggle. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a stubborn thing. It's, it's a deep thing. Of course, we're commanded to be grateful. We're commanded to be thankful. So, of course, it must therein be a good thing. But if you have to be told, it must not come naturally. So, I have good news. I've got good news. Uh, This is Advent. This is that season that takes us on into the Christmas celebration. Now, I say that's good news, and what does that have to do with all this? Because when you rightly reckon with what this is about, it can make for a beautiful challenge to the thankless heart. Okay? Christmas can make for a beautiful challenge to the thankless heart. So, this little mini-series we're going to be doing for the next few weeks uh, is, in fact, on the lines, along the lines of responses to Christmas. And the first place we're going to look uh, here this morning is in 1 Timothy. So, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy. Uh, This is in a series of T's in the the New Testament. Uh, You have 
First and Second Thessalonians, and then you have First and Second Timothy. There's not a third Timothy, but there is Titus. And then you hit this little book called Philemon, sadly it goes ignored too often. Then this big book called Hebrews. Well, if you can find Hebrews, you can find those series of T's. You find the series of T's, you can find First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter one. We're going to read verses twelve through seventeen. I'll just give you forewarning. We're honing in on one verse within this larger, not large, but larger context, and it's verse 15. We're going to hone in on verse 15, but we do need to read verses 12 through 17 just to kind of get a sense as to where, where we are here. Hear now God's Word. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for this season. Thank You for this time that we have here on this first Sunday of Advent to begin to reflect on this question as to whether or not we are thankful, and if so, for what um, and why. And we know something of the rightness, the goodness, the fittedness of gratitude and thankfulness in the human heart, and so we ask that You would help us to learn, even this morning, uh, where we're struggling with this and where we need to be challenged and confronted here and what it is, what it is that can do that. We ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, oh, would you help us to understand what your servant, our brother Paul, was writing uh, there to Timothy as he was serving in the church at Ephesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. There's a Ghanaian proverb that goes like this. Even the chicken, when it drinks, lifts its head to heaven to thank God for the water. And the idea is this, most birds, not all, not all, but most birds, the way that they drink is they'll stick their beak down into the water, get a sip, cock their head back, and then let gravity bring in that water down the trickle of their throat and their, and their, their thirst is, is quenched. And the fact of the matter is it might do us well, all of us, to take our lead from the bird. Uh, to lift our eyes to heaven, recognizing from whence all of our blessings come, especially perhaps if you just consider this simple fact. Clinical studies have shown that actually we are hardwired for gratitude. There are health benefits. It's been, it's been studied for, for the grateful heart, the thankful mindset. Your, your blood pressure is impacted. Your immune system is, is improved. Your sleep is, is impacted as, as well. We know this, this is having, uh, being a person of gratitude and thankfulness it changes something just from a health dynamic individually. It also changes uh, group dynamics as well. You think in terms of teams, 
coworkers, family members to the extent that thankfulness and gratitude permeates the atmosphere it is given and received. There's something that's just different, right, about that group of people. Uh, it's, it's easier. They function. It's like the WD-40 of relationships. Uh, when, when there's gratitude and thanksgiving, express one to another. I, again, the point being, it would seem that at the individual basis and the relational corporate basis, we are hardwired for gratitude. It's why wise parents take upon themselves to train up their children to say thank you. Just a little, you know, uh, public service announcement moving into December. uh, When the gifts are given and the gifts are received, you know, have your child learn. Train them in this, even if they don't want to. Of course they don't want to. That's why you have to train them. Um, We do need more than training in this. We do need more than just to be told. We need to be shown. We need examples. We need models as to what gratitude and thanksgiving looks like. And we have that here with the Apostle Paul in this passage. Clearly, I mean, you see it right there in in, in verse 12. This man, um, described as the the apostle of the heart set free, is the apostle of the grateful heart, the thankful spirit, overflowing. You know, it was said of John Bunyan, prick him and he bleeds bibline. Well, you could say prick Paul and he bleeds gratitude and thanksgiving. It just, it just comes out of his pores. But, we, now I have to say this, we need more than an example. We need more than a model because, as we've been saying, it doesn't come naturally. We need ability. We need not just pat, a pattern, we need fuel, if I can mix those metaphors just a little bit. We need fuel. So maybe what we need to do is not just say, well, be thankful like Paul, but ask ourselves, why was Paul able to be thankful? Dig down in there just a little bit and begin to wrestle with the question, what's driving the heartbeat of this man? Well, we see that in this text. And as I said, we're going to be drilling down here into verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is a Christmas verse. I know it's not in Luke's gospel. I know it's not in Matthew's gospel. I know it's not in Isaiah, the gospel of the Old Testament. It's how Isaiah is described sometimes. I got it, but this is a Christmas verse. This is an Advent verse. When you start mentioning Jesus coming into the world, it sounds very red and green. Well, it should. It seems that there is a a wonder to the Christmas message. There's a wonder to the Christmas message such that it can actually make us, to the degree we hear it and take it to heart, make us thankful. You see, with Paul, it could be true for us to the degree that we embrace this, to the degree that we're taking it in and are grappling with it. The wonder of the Christmas message just might make hard-hearted individuals like me, maybe you, you're as bad as I am, grateful. There's four things here. If you've got the outline, you can see it there. Four things there that, that show us something of, well, what is it, the wonder of this message that might then impel us and, and allow us, free us to be grateful, thankful people? And the, the four things are, first, the content of the, the Christmas message. The second thing is the offer of this Christmas message. The third thing is the essence of this 
Christmas message. And then the fourth thing, finally, is the impact of this Christmas message. Now, obviously, if I've got four points, I can't go too long on any of them. Uh, so we're going to be kind of moving, moving at a good pace here for the next few minutes. So the first thing is the content of the Christmas message. And that's verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I'll just stop there. What Paul is saying to his young protege, Timothy, is, Timothy, this is real. This is decisive. You can count on this. That's what I mean when I say the content. The content. You can count on this. Timothy, it is, it is true. Now, now, Paul has... What, what, what's going on here, the context is Paul has sent Timothy to take charge and lead, not take charge, but to lead this church there in Ephesus that's struggling, struggling with some divisive, uh, deviant doctrine uh, that's causing some problems there in, in the church of Ephesus. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, unlike the false teaching that's, that's all around you there within this church there in Ephesus, and we, by the way, we don't know exactly what the false teaching was, but we know it's fruit. You, if you read between the lines, as you're reading 1 Timothy, you can see some of the bitter fruit of this false gospel narrative. Had, it was producing such things as speculation and arrogance and greed. That's why Paul has to press against those things so hard in 1 Timothy. And, to, and so Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, unlike the fruit of that false teaching, that false gospel, this gospel, this message, this word, this saying is true. It's true. And because it's true, it's good. It's good. And it will bear far better fruit in the lives of its hearers than anything else. It is, it is unlike this false teaching. It is faithful to the gospel. It is consistent, Timothy, to this message that I has been passed down to me and I am passing down to you. It is true, it is faithful, and it is good. You can go a little further and say not only is it true, but it is reliable. It, it, it is reliable. It is, it is substantive. It holds, it has, it has good effect. Keep your thumb here in, in 1 Timothy and go with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, um, verses 7 to 8. I just want to walk you through just, just one way to understand what's going on there. If you know anything about Psalm 19 and then also 119, those psalms are so much about the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And, and what we can, the, some profound things that we can learn there. And what you see here, a way of understanding, commentators will tell you, a way of reading and understanding, I'm just going to look at verses 7 and 8 just for time's sake, is to see that the first clause, what I'm going to show you here in a second, the first clause, because it's true, because of the validity of the first clause, it has this impact, the consequence, and that's the second clause, okay? The first thing that the writer says, therein leads to and allows for the second thing. And without the first thing, you don't have the second thing. Okay? And it's very much what we're seeing here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So, verses 7 and 8, paraphrasing, the law of the Lord is perfect, therefore it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, therefore it is able to make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. That's why it rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, and therein it enlightens the eyes. You see the idea? 
and without the first, you don't have the second. If it wasn't good, if it wasn't, if it wasn't true, it wouldn't be good. Because it's true, it is good, it has this effect, it is, in fact, reliable. It's bankable. Timothy, what I'm telling you is something that's not just worth your intellectual assent, but your heart's allegiance. This is something I'm conveying to you that is worth acting on, trusting in, and living out of. This is the content of the Christmas message. The content of the Christmas message, and it is true and it is reliable. Now, think with me as to why that should make us thankful. Think about the number of messages and the content of the messages in the great marketplace of ideas. The Christian gospel, the the Christmas message stands out like a lighthouse in a dark, violent, stormy night. It's why one of the images that we have here in the Advent season is what? Light. Think about that over these next several weeks. Every time you see a light in a candle, the lights in the trees, lights maybe even on a necklace, I don't know, but just lights everywhere. Well, people may not have a clue as to what the lights are for. That's okay. You do. You do. And in fact, you can seize as an opportunity for conversation to talk about that. What do you think that's about? The Christmas message stands out as a lighthouse in the midst of a dark, ugly, stormy night. So much so that John Stott rightly said or referred to these other ideas, these other worldviews in this way. The speculative nonsense of false teachers and outright lies of secular propaganda. He's not being mean. Stott didn't have a mean bone in his body. But what he's just trying to do is assess the the lack of truth in there and the, the poor effect that's borne out in false teaching. And friends, that's something we have to be thankful for, that we've got the gospel that we've got the gospel, we've got the truth here. That's not arrogant, it's just saying it. It's just saying it. That takes us to the second point, and that is the offer of the Christmas message. Again, verse 15, just the first part of it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This offer, this is the extent. It's held forward. How far, though, does it go? How far should we embrace it? How much, to what extent should we hear this and take it and, and, and then run with it? Well, clearly, Paul would have us to, to understand that this, this is to be taken, is to be accepted, as he said. It is worth deserving of full acceptance. It's to be embraced, to be accepted completely. Not slightly. It's not to be downplayed or discounted or minimized. No matter the circumstances, no matter what your, your inclination, our inclinations might be, it's not to be uh, accepted just kind of slightly, just kind of played down just, just a bit, but rather fully to be embraced, to be endorsed, to be received, no matter even the consequences. It's to be fully, completely accepted. Now, 
commentators, some have noted, New Testament scholars have noted this, that it's quite possible that what Paul intends here when he says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that he means not just that we, we as individuals ought to accept it fully in the sense of, of depth, but perhaps it, he may well also mean something else, and that has to do with breadth. That is to say, it's meant for all. It's meant for all the human race. It's not just meant for just a few, just a, a select bunch who are smart enough to take it in, but it's meant for, for all, for all tribes, for all peoples, for all races, for all nationalities, all tongues. It's meant for, for not just in terms of depth, but, but breadth. It's, it's, put it this way, in our pluralistic context, it's not just one neat idea among many others. It's not just one possible cure among a whole pharmaceutical pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical shelf full of cures. Rather, it's the only one. You look on the shelf and there's one. There's one solution. There's, there's one cure that's meant for all. And it's quite possible that there's that double sense here that Paul has in mind when he says that this is deserving of full acceptance. The offer of Christmas in that sense would then would demand a complete acceptance and a universal acceptance. And we've got to hear that in our day. We, you know, you know, I know, we all know too well that the ethos of our age is, look, there's really not much difference between one faith and one religion and one worldview. They're all basically the same is what we're told. Now, the, the motivation behind that can often be good. The idea being looking at the carnage and, and the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the willfulness, the stubbornness, the hate that can be engendered, at times acknowledged by exclusive worldviews. And there's a desire there to say, well, let's counteract that by saying, maybe, maybe we can counteract that by saying, well, they're all basically true. They're all basically the same. And so then we don't have to have all that exclusivity. You see the idea there, the motivation. It's a fine motivation to the degree it's actually it. The problem is it's naive. And I don't have the time to get into all of this, but, but just to simply say a, a few things, and that is one, it's, it's naive in the sense of not looking really at the essential truth claims of those different world religions. Fundamentally, they are, in fact, different. Their understanding of who God is and what the problem is and why we're here, those questions, the answers to those questions are fundamentally different. You can't say. You can't say with a straight face that, in fact, that they're all the same. And beyond that, even while perhaps the, the, the motivation might be towards tolerance, if you say to a... Muslim neighbor, you know, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever, they're all the same. How does that man feel? You say that to a Christian woman. You say that to the Jewish person in the marketplace. What, you have, what have you just done? You've just dismissed them. That's an incredibly disrespectful thing to say, that your religion is no different than any other's. You see, what we need to do here is, is, is can I just 
I don't mean to be severe, but to spiritually grow up, to put on our big boy pants and be willing to make some hard choices, to, to, to press against the spiritual naivete and immaturity of our age and recognize that decisions have to be made. And we need that. Our age needs to grow up a bit. And for that, the Christmas message presses that into our face because Jesus will have nothing to do with that pluralistic nonsense. And we should be thankful for that. We should be thankful for that, for this call to grow up and press past and through this spiritual immaturity. That takes us to the third point, the essence of the Christmas message, what it is. You know, Charlie Brown, can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? Thank you for asking. I've got an answer for you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. What is this about? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul would have us to understand there's something historical in mind that he's speaking of. He has something historical in mind that he's speaking of here. Jesus' entrance into the world in time and space. It had a date on it. It's, it's not myth. It's not legend. It's not wish fulfillment. It's fulfillment of ancient prophecy, fulfillment of human longing, but it is not legendary. It's not myth. But note the way Paul says this. It's really interesting. Jesus came into the world, which speaks to his preexistence. Think with me. If I say, Sam came into the room, it means Sam was here before, but now he's here. You see? And, and Paul is saying, Jesus came into the world. There's no birth that can be spoken of this way except His. There's no arrival on the human scene that can be spoken of, any other that can be spoken of in this way. It's something historical, something wondrous and amazing what Paul is speaking of here. Also, though, not just historical but liberating because he's telling us not just what has happened, but he's speaking also as to why. Why has he come into the world? To save sinners. To save to save, that word in the Greek is so rich in its implications. It can, it can mean to, to restore to health, depending on context. It can mean to deliver. It can mean to, to rescue. It's quite a word with quite a range of, of meanings. And you think in terms of to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Think in terms of the implications of that for us, of, of why Jesus has to come, who we are, why He has to come, where He found us when He came, and where we'd be if He hadn't. Where we'd be without Christmas, without the coming of the Christ. The essence of this message is something historical. It's something liberating. It's just beautiful. That said, we have to recognize, of course, you know, the, the phrasing, Jesus saves, is, has been repeated so often that it can sound 
trivial. It can sound trivial and trite, right? It's also easily mocked by foolish scoffers. It's easily forgotten by wayward disciples that Jesus saves. But if, in fact, we are His disciples, that's exactly what we know to be true. That Christ Jesus has come into the world to save the likes of us. So maybe we should repeat that just a few more times. That Jesus saves. With the acknowledgement that if we don't, we run a terrible risk of drifting and heading into the shoals. We need to repeat that again and again and again and again and again. Make it our first catechism question and answer. Jesus saves. It's the wonder of this Christmas message, the essence of this Christmas message, and for that we should be thankful that we have it. One last thing, the impact, the impact of this Christmas message, and you can see that here just on Paul, it's very personal. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul is making very clear this is not just something theoretical. It is not just something abstract. For him, it was deeply, 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 deeply personal, this message. When he says that I am the foremost of sinners... He's not keeping this at arm's length. He can't. He simply cannot. Now, let's just be clear. It's not as though Paul has done a literal assessment, right? It's not as though he has checked the criminal records of all the world's databases and come to the tragic conclusion that he drew the short straw and is now stuck with this title. That's not what this means. Okay, that's not what this means at all. This is not about a literal assessment that Paul is making of his status, but rather a spiritual conviction. A spiritual conviction. This is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in this man's heart such that, here's the irony, it sounds like he's making comparisons. It's actually just the opposite. Because of the Holy Spirit's work in his heart, he now is, he can't do the comparison game anymore. He sees how foolish how devoid of any good, any fruit whatsoever. He's free from the comparison game, in fact. And it's why he's free to then say of himself, I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the lot. And, and in a sense, mean it as he just thinks, though, of himself. As he just thinks of himself. This is so deeply personal. So deeply personal, at the same time, can I just say it's also doxological. It leads to praise. It leads to praise and adoration of the Lord. Paul's heart was just absolutely captured by the grace of God. Absolutely captured. He knew, who, he knew well who he was. He says that in verse 14. He, excuse me, verse 13. He had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent and yet, his, the trajectory of his life was arrested and changed how, he tells us in verse 14 and verse 16, sandwiching what we're reading here in verse 15, twice 
he says, and it's translated in the English, I receive mercy. Literally in the Greek, it's I was mercied. Now, we don't have a, I don't think there's a verb for that. I make up words all the time. I don't think we, right? But Paul's saying, I was twice, lest we miss it. He can't help but repeat himself. I was mercied. I was mercied. That's what happened to me. And therein what flows out of him from there is verses 16 and 17, but I received mercy, I was mercied for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Drop the mic. This is the impact of Christmas. It's personal and it's doxological to the degree we hear it and take it to heart. Now, here's what's beautiful about this. Like somebody just before the service told me, I'm so glad you're preaching on this text. It's my life first. You know what? It could be all of our life first. Yes, I know, I know. None of us actually have the same story literally as the Apostle Paul. Got it, okay? But the theme is the same. The theme is the same, so that it, and I'm not exaggerating in the least when I say this, that truly every single disciple of Jesus, you know, a person who has heard the call of Jesus and responded to it with repentance and faith and now strives to follow Him, every disciple of Jesus should be able to read their names, their lives into verse 15, such that any one of us would be able to say, as He does, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's true of every Christian. Of every Christian. Can you say that? Do you know that of yourself? The, the humility of that, the joy of that, the wonder of that. The release of that, the security of that, do you know that? Do you see how that just might burrow down into the roots of your being and make you a thankful soul? The message of Christmas can do that. The message of Christmas can do that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for what you did in Saul of Tarsus' life, making him the man we know now as the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you did in his life. Thank you for an ongoing work. Your spirit still at work in this world in the lives of your people. We ask that you would help us please to hear this message. That you would in fact make us grateful, thankful people. We pray in your name. Amen.